Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. gentlemen, my name is Holly, and I'm an alcoholic. First, I did not graciously consent. (laughs) My ticket does not allow me out of here until tomorrow afternoon. (laughs) So I got to eat, and I'm used to sponging on people, so you people, (laughs) why not? (laughs) So you people so graciously consented to uh, take care of me, so, you know, when I mean... uh, I still have a few of the ways that I had when I was drinking. I'll mood shiver once in a while. <laughs> but it is a delight uh, to be here with you tonight. And uh, I want to thank you for, of all the people that was there that you could have asked, that you did ask me. And uh, thank you again for the lovely room that you provided for Cecil that I am enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> the big book uh, tells me that our stories reveal, in a general way, what we used to be like and what happened and what we're like now. Uh, if I start to tell you all of the things, how would I used to be like, well, I'll miss my plane tomorrow, so I'm not going through all of that, but to let you know that I am one of you, I am a part of you, and I have my last, uh, well, how do you put that? I want to do it the way you do it here. My drinking date, is that the way you say it? Or my last drinking date, I suppose. Well, anyway, my anniversary is November 11th. I came in November 11th, 1954. I'll learn the way you all do it one of these days. But I, I, I can't. You see, I, I didn't know it was uh, November 11th. My sponsor had to tell me because, you know, I had reached the stage of zombieism. You don't remember it. And she says, well, that's no, well, that's, well, that was Armistice Day. That's the day I fired my last shot. So, uh, <laughs> so this time next week, I presume, with God's help and the help of this fellowship, and I keep... Laying down and getting up and doing the things I'm supposed to do one day at a time. It'll be my birthday. Uh, I know my group's going to have a party for me. You know, alcoholics can't keep a secret. They kept saying, you're going to be home the 11th. You know, yeah, why? 99, I'm asking you the same question, you know. You know what they're up to, but you, you know, you're supposed to walk in and act surprised and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can do that, too. <laughs> Well, I had my first drink when I was about 14 years old, I think. Sometimes I wonder if I wasn't born an alcoholic. It certainly didn't take a lot of practice for me to to fall right where I was. I uh, was born, I believe, or I acquired a chip on my shoulder quite early in life because I was an orphan. You see, we didn't have any more orphans in the United States, just me. And uh, 
I just felt that this is one of the dirtiest deals that could ever be handled. Now, this has not a thing to do with me getting drunk, not, not one way or the other thing. Because for the simple reason is, I often think now, uh, you know, I, oh, I used to cry about being an orphan, you know, and that would entitle you to drink, and people would feel sorry for you because you were an orphan. And I'm so happy for the fellowship, I think, sometimes to myself now. But for the grace of God in this fellowship, wouldn't it be cute for me to be sitting on some bar stool now crying because I'm an orphan? At my age, you're supposed to be an orphan, you know. <laughs> but that was one of the earliest uh, things that I had to, shall we say, uh, bellyache about, was being an orphan. And I grew up, I won't say they raised me because they had one heck of a time in my grandparents' home. I had a cousin, I hated her guts. She, uh, and was along, all of these little things that I, they had nothing to do with me getting drunk or becoming an alcoholic, but you could always use them as an excuse to drink. Uh, my cousin, she, she was a lovely girl, and I resented her terribly. I was always long and gonky and skinny, and Helen was so rounded out and beautifully put together, and, and she behaved beautifully too, and I didn't behave. Uh, and they loved Helen. At least they presumed they loved her. It looked like it because love was never spoken of in our home. All my grandparents ever thought about was the wrath of God. They never talked about the love of God. But they loved Helen, and I could feel the difference how much they loved her more than, well, they didn't love me. I don't blame them. I wasn't a very lovable child. And then that, of course, made me jealous of Helen, who was rounded out and beautifully built and all that sort of thing. And, oh, my grandfather, I can remember him saying to Helen on her birthday, and he always called her little babe, come here, and he'd give her something for her birthday. And, oh, I was so jealous of that girl. But, you know, uh, I'm not jealous of my cousin Helen now, although she is rounded out now to quite rounded out. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but So I have no reason to be jealous of cousin Helen anymore. <laughs> One way or the other. <laughs> but uh, it, it was these kind of... Uh, all this goes along with from time to time I would think about these things when I was stealing my grandfather's liquor. Now, what caused me to steal my grandfather's liquor was this. Grandpa had arthritis. That's the only thing I believe I inherited from him. And he would come home on wet, rainy, dark days and go into the, his bedroom there, and he would pull open this dresser drawer and he'd pull out this jug. And he'd ruined this whiskey. He'd put a lot of rock candy and mess in it, you know, and, and herbs or roots or whatever. But, you know, uh, and then he would take two, three swigs out of it after dragging in there. His arthritis was killing him, poor old soul. And he'd sit there and he'd rub that leg and then he could walk out beautifully. I watched him do this several times, you know. Orphans don't have much other thing, many other things to do. And uh, I decided I should try this. And I switched in there one day, and I pulled open this drawer, and I took out two, three swigs, and I walked out the way my grandfather walked in, dragging one leg, those kind of things. <laughs> but then I had found something, because it didn't make any difference whether you were an orphan or not. Your kin people are right there in the dresser drawer, all of them. Those that you don't have, you can invent. They're right there. And I now had found a friend. Now, I cannot say, I and that, and that was the horrible taste and stuff. I, I mean, it, it tasted horrible. It was like, uh, you know, the old man, um, like somebody was making you drink it. It was like the old man that lived up in the mountain, you know. He was coming down the mountain one day, and he had a shotgun under one arm and a jug of uh, corn squeezings under the other arm. And he said to this man, he says, do you drink? And he said, no, I don't. I don't drink. 
He said, well, you're going to drink now. And he just uh, cocked this shotgun on him, and he said, now, you take a drink of that. So the poor man, this man's got a shotgun, draw it on him, so he takes a drink of it. He said, it's pretty bad stuff, wasn't it? And he said, yes, it was. He said, all right, now you hold that gun on me while I take one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you see, that was more or less the way it was. It seemed like somebody was holding the gun on me, making me drink the things. Well, as time went on, I did all of the things that uh, I suppose a young lady does, and some of them that young ladies don't do. I uh, got married, uh, as time went along there. Uh, marriage is like vaccinations on me they don't take. And But, you know, I always wanted something of my own. I always wanted children. And I will say this. Forgive me. No, no, you don't have to forgive me. I don't care whether you're doing that. But had I been coming along in this day and age, I'd have had those children, but I don't think I'd ever got married. <laughs> I'd have just... Because I always wanted something that was mine. You see, I had that possessive tendency long before I ever come to fellowship. Long before I ever started drinking badly, I mean. And I... I had two children, and I, I was the dragonest drunk mother you ever seen in your life. I, nobody would ever could ever accuse me of abandoning my children. Wherever I went, I took my kids with me. You had better believe it. Didn't you? The only time I didn't take them with me when they were in school or I was at work. Of course, I worked as a bartender. I believed in on-the-job training, and uh, <laughs> it's profitable. You know, you learn a lot of other ways to, uh, shall we say, Help along with your support. All good bartenders know how to barmaids know how to steal. If you don't, you'll learn. They don't pay you very much, so it gives you an excuse. One <laughs> of those kind of things. My children loved me. They loved me dearly because I was the type of mother that never went around beating on her kids and all that sort of thing. Oh, I once in a while I a little shake one of them up pretty badly or deny them something, but. Who in the world's going to be beating on a kid when you got a hangover in the morning? You, you don't be beating on kids. You give them a quarter and send them a show and tell them, look, I'm going to get you next time. You know. And uh, they loved me. My my children, they, they just thought I was the most adorable. You know, my son said something to me not too long ago. Uh, I was telling my children whenever they call me or come around me, I tell them how very proud I am of them because they did turn out to be most excellent people. And I tell them, I said, you know, in spite of the poor childhood you had, son, I'm very proud of you. He said, what do you mean, poor childhood? He said, mother, we had something in our home that few people had. I said, what in the world was that for us? We were. He said, we had love. He said, mother, you just loved us. Well, you know, he if he wants to take it as that, a lot of that was possessiveness. See? Uh, oh, how I would get one on one side of me and one on the other side, and they'd crawl in my bed early in the morning, and I'd just hug them, just the different the living day. They were mine. You know, and here was my son, a great big joker. You know, he's a big, tall young. So he gets a toothache, he comes and gets in Mama's bed because it makes it feel better. <laughs> but uh, those are some of the things that I will always remember, is that my children think or thought, and, and I suppose in my way I did love them, but I was one... Heck of a poor mother is the way I look at it now. Uh, but nevertheless, we sufficed. And uh, I brought them up learning, look, one thing in particular, learn that you don't need me for every little thing. Learn how to stand on your two, own two feet. And I think they really and truly appreciate that, but the simple reason is, uh, I will never be one of where it was it not for this program. I'd be one of them poor mamas sitting there. Oh, my children don't hear anything about me. They never come around me. 
Oh, I don't want to be bothered with them all the time anyway. I'm going about the business. I didn't graze you to be hanging up under me all the time. I had a life of my own. <laughs> but my drinking went right along. Uh, you know, I had many people to, uh, one particular old dame I used to drink with, she would, bless her heart, she, she was always trying to tell me, uh, how to drink. And I was always telling her, how I felt, but she didn't want to hear how I felt, you know. She needed me because no, you know, old doll goes into the bar with a young doll and because uh, without the young doll, because the, the gentleman, you, you know, he's not going to buy the new doll a drink without buying an old one a drink. So she needed me, you know, on my days off. We went in the bar. See, I know how that goes. I've played on both leagues and so. And, and I would try to tell her about how sick I got in my, how my head would hurt, and, and and she would say, now, now look, dear, I'm going to tell you. She was going to teach me how to drink. She'd say, now, tonight when we go out, dear, if you will just drink a little olive oil, you won't get drunk. And I, goodness gracious, the only difference between being a long, tall, puking drunk, I was just a long, tall, greasy, puking drunk. That was the only difference. <laughs> and I would try to explain to her about these awful hangovers, and she would... She had the remedy for them. Now, dear, when we go out tonight and come home, I'm going to show you how not to have a hangover. If you'll just take a bottle... There goes that bedpan again. Uh, uh, if you will just take a bottle of beer and you'll just open it and sit it down beside of the bed and let it get flat and drink it first thing in the morning, you will not have a hangover. Now, whether this works or not, I don't know. There's no way in the world I could go to bed with a full bottle of beer sitting down there. So, and I was not a beer drinker, but I don't know where you're going to sleep with a full bottle. You know it's there. <laughs> so I had, and then on the other hand, I would have someone else come along and they'd tell me, you know, you have a green thumb, Holly, and I do love flowers. I simply adore flowers. They said, why don't you cultivate your flower garden? Why don't you do things like that? And they never told me don't drink. They said, if you will do these things and don't drink so much. Work out there in your flower garden. I had one of the prettiest ones on the street. You know, it looked like an alcoholic's flower garden because everything was all mixed up in it there. And they would say, work in that. Well, I'd go out there, you know, and I'd take that bottle of wine right out there with me, though. And I'd be pulling weeds, you know. And I would have a, stick my straw down in my bottle there so that, you know, you don't have to pick it up. And one day I uh, had a catastrophe happen there. I knocked the bottle over and I decided to dig a hole and put the bottle down in the hole. You know about that, don't you? And stick straws down in the bottle, and you can suck out the bottle and, you know, pull the weeds. One morning, I walked out there, and I had more straws coming up out the ground, and I had petunias. That doesn't plant bottles all over the ground. I'm telling you, it was a mess. So, I, you know, I went through all of these things. So, you know, I was trying... See, I didn't want to quit drinking. I just didn't want to get drunk. You know, I wondered if I could just reach me a mellow high, you know, and just stay there on it. But I was always polishing up this mellow high. I never could get me a high where, you know, that isn't life beautiful. Uh, you know, you always, at least I, uh, always would overdo this thing one way or the other. And now what I want to tell you about what made me come to the point in life. Many other things happen. We don't go into all that, you know. But what made me come to the point to recognize the fact that I was a hopeless, helpless drunk was this. I lived in this community, very small Catholic community. Most of us were. But anyhow, all the activities were surrounded by our church other than 
the ones that we performed at the bar. And um, everything... You sent your children there to school and all that sort of thing. It was it was a beehive of I mean, a lovely little place to live, except for a few people like myself. You know, everybody always talks about. You know, when I was drinking out before I said I ran into bad company. Nobody ever admits that they were the bad company. You always, you know, it's always somebody that I got caught up in bad. Who who in the devil was the bad company? I was the bad company. Because if you didn't drink, I don't want to be bothered with you, you know, <laughs> as far as that's concerned. Who needs friends that don't drink, you know? Well, nevertheless, we were having a very lovely affair at this church, that which I attended, where I sent my children to school. And uh, they had, we had just had the four first black nuns ever in the state of Michigan, and that was quite a big deal for us. And on top of that, we had built this, I'm talking about we, they, all I did was get drunk. Uh, they, it's just like an A. It's the same thing that happens in AA. Those that don't do nothing always talk about we. <laughs> but anyway, what happened was we were going to have a big celebration because of our four black nuns and before because of our little three-room schoolhouse there. And Father had all the visiting dignitaries from over the town to be there and everything else. Well, I thought I might as well go up and help out with the celebration, you know, so way Now, that morning, I said, I wouldn't know anything about the fellowship. I said, well, I better not drink nothing before I go up there. But do you ever hear the call of the wild goose? It's a strange call. I don't drink, though. So when I get up there, I go straight to Mother Superior, and I ask her, Mother, is there anything that I can help you do? And she says, now, darling, you just go and enjoy yourself. I'll send for you when I need you. Never tell a praxin alcoholic to go and enjoy himself. It's very detrimental. I went back to the caretaker's house, and there he was. They had a bottle of this cooking wine. You know, that's a 10 or 12% mess uh, that they drank. And father was, and the caretaker, rather, was um, given all the adults you know, congratulating one another on their work because they had really built it with their own, you know, brawn there. And he was giving everybody a little drink out of one of them little insult glasses like that, and they were having a little drink of wine. <laughs> I reached up and I got myself a gratitude glass and I poured myself a drink of wine. Finally, the wine uh, ran out and I went to replenish their supply. And on the way back, I thought, well, I might as well get my own brand. I'll get them their kitchen wine, but I'll get my own brand, which happens to be Mad Dog. Uh, <laughs> the more higher forms of Chablis. <laughs> Nevertheless, pretty soon it was time for me to go see if Mother wanted me to do anything. And on the way over there to see if she wanted me to do anything, one of our good parishioners there was making some barbecue, and I felt, well, maybe I should eat something, and I wouldn't be so intoxicated. So he wasn't preparing it fast enough for me, so I grabbed this rib away from him, and I stuck it down into the barbecue sauce about up to there. And one of our good parishioners happened to be standing there, and she had the unmitigated nerve to say, Holly Martin, you can't do that. She shouldn't have said that to me. <laughs> so they tell me that I let her have it down across the head with the rib. I <laughs> presume or assume maybe I might have performed this atrocity, I don't know. They said that I did. But anyhow, when I got through waving that rib around, there was nobody left on that playground or ground wherever it was but me. When I got home, I had a large picture of our divine Lord in my living room. 
I was never so ashamed of what I had done in all my life. I wasn't ashamed that she got sorry that she got hit. I was sorry that I got caught hitting her. That's what it was, you know. And I tried to justify this. You know, when we've done something horrible, how you try to justify it? Oh, I got religious about the thing. I said, well, Samson took the jawbone of an ass and he wiped out a whole army of people and she can't stand to get hit with one little bone of a pig. What's the matter with her, you know? You're just going to try to, you know, you know, justify everything you do. Well, I looked at that picture on the wall and I, I just really, I felt horrible. And I said, dear God, if ever again in my life I take a drink, strike me dead. Now, friends, I meant that with all my heart. You know, I really meant that because you don't play with Almighty God. Oh, God, please, I, I've made a fool out of myself. But then, so what? And, you know, our divine Lord must have a tremendous sense of humor, you know. Well, the next day I wanted to go up and make an apology for my activity there and... uh Father would not accept that. He wanted to see me face to face, and so the nuns drugged me up the street there, in the face of the whole community. And when I got there, uh, he asked me, I guess he was fresh out of pledges, and he said, well, Holly, I want you to promise me one thing, that you will never take another drink until you take or see me take a woman into my house. And I thought, well, now, oh, I readily agreed. You know, any time you get somebody off of your back, you'll agree to anything. But on the way home, I got to thinking, I can't hang around here and watch this man and see what he's going to do. I don't know what he may do. <laughs> Maybe I should get a six-pack and think this thing over. You know? So when I got home with my six-pack, well, then I said, God, I didn't mean. I looked at that picture and said, God, I didn't mean beer, you know. And uh, the next thing you know, I'm back drinking whiskey. And I said, God, I didn't mean whiskey. Next thing you know, I'm right back drinking wine. And I said, Lord, just forget it. I'm a helpless, hopeless, drunk. This is the way I'm feeling. And this sort of thing went on for some time. And that is what... Now, here's what happened. One Saturday night, I happened to be at home. And this was the beginning of a miracle. It was a miracle unto itself, the mere fact that I was home on Saturday night, because it rarely was I ever home. I don't know whether I just got fired or what I was doing home. But anyway... A story came on over the radio. It was called The Glass Crutch, and it was about a woman that had a drinking problem. And she said, and it said, if you ever need our help, we'll be the first number in the book. Well, I don't remember today any of the ingredients of that story whatsoever, but I do remember this, that it was about a woman that had a drinking problem. If it had been about a man that had a drinking problem, I wouldn't have even listened. All the men I knew had problems. If they knew me, they had a problem. But, but nevertheless... I thought if she would just quit drinking this whiskey and get some cool wine and drink that, you know, everything would be all right, you know. And that went on uh, for a long, long time, six or seven years. And I want to tell you tonight, whenever you've carried the message to someone and you've planted the seed, my friends, and nothing happens right away, don't forget you planted the seed. And it may not be productive at that moment, but something will happen because that seed has been planted. And it was planted. It took seven years for anything to happen. Six or seven, I don't remember which, because I stayed drunk the whole time. But during the time that I stayed drunk, this was very nagging to me. Those words, the glass crutch, they nagged me over and over. It didn't happen every day or every week, or not even every month, but from time to time. These words would come to me, the glass crutch, the glass crutch. You walk down the street, your heel plates beat out the glass crutch. This day's the clock says the glass crutch. This day's every piece of material you read says the glass crutch. And finally one day, you cry out, God, what does this mean? Yeah? And you find out, Holly, you can't even read the newspaper without the glass crutch in your hand. Yeah. And then you say, well, I better do something about this. But then what do you do? They told you to be the first number in the book. 
So you look. And there it is. You're hoping that it's not there, but it's there. You know? It's right there. And you call the number. And if you're anything like me, you lie. You say, I got a friend out here that's about to lose her mind. Could you send somebody out to do something about her? And the lady says, do you want to, would you like to have somebody talk to you? You say, oh, no, goodbye. So this is what happened, my friends. And finally, I go right back and I call again, you know, not too long afterwards. And finally, they get my name and a few particulars out of me. And she says, we'll have someone call you. And this is so very important. Remember this, my friends. It's important that you do follow up with that call. You, the lady said she'd have someone call you. Now, remember, that person is sitting there desperate. They want you to call and they don't want you to call. See? But call. They want you to, but they don't want you to. See, you know. And that's the way life is. I want help, but, you know, have you ever gotten anything? And after you get in there for a while, you say, oh, my God, what in the heck did I get in this mess for? You know, what did I call these people up for, you know? You... But anyway, the woman did call. She didn't wait two or three days to call. You don't do that. You call right then. That's what's important. That person needs you. He don't want you, but he needs you. So she called me, and she said to me, uh, it's a very stupid thing. At least I'm the one who was stupid. She wasn't. She said, now if you've got anything out there to drink, you get rid of it. And I did. I drank it up right away. <laughs> and, uh, and But now I had reached the stage of zombieism. That is, if you drink, you don't get drunk. If you don't drink, you don't get sober. You ever went through some mess like that? That is something else. I'm telling you, you're talking about a nightmare. That was it. Well, nevertheless... Uh, uh, she came on out there in about, uh, oh, maybe 45 minutes time for me to go to that first meeting. That uh, Two of my buddies came by there, acquaintances or whatever you want to call them. They gave me a couple of drinks. I'd better went on to the meeting like a zombie than to take these couple of drinks of something, whatever they gave me, which was alcohol and some kind. I don't know what. And it, it was the same as pouring coal all under dying embers. You know, the very time you don't want to get drunk, you get drunk. Every time you don't want to get drunk. You know, alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. It says you do what I want you to do. Well, nevertheless, she went and took me to my first meeting. And I went back to my second meeting for one reason only. They had read out of the book. I didn't know it was a big book then, but they kept reading out of this devilish book. And something came back to my mind the next morning. Rarely have we ever seen a person fail. And I went back to that meeting because I knew there was something they were drinking that rarely ever failed, and I had to go find out. <laughs> and all I had a sponsor was a doozy. I, I mean, you know, sponsorship is so very important. You know, we forget now what sponsorship really in, entails. A sponsor, you know what a sponsor is? In other words, a sponsor is a person that is supposed to try, that carries the message to you daily. Daily. You know, when I tell my pigeons, look, call me. If they don't call me, I'm going to call them. See? One of those kind of things. I don't want them to just listen to me. I want them to go to meetings so they can hear what everybody else has got to say. You know? Because I had one one time I could have killed her. You know what? I had been worrying with that girl and worrying with her and worrying with her. And finally, one night, I didn't go to meeting with her. She went by herself, and the next morning, she called me up. See, sometimes, this is why you need your people to go to all kinds of meetings, talk to all kinds of people, but you see about Oh, she made me so mad. I've outgrown it. But now, she said, call me next morning. Holly, I can now make it. Now, I've been fooling with her for a long time. I said, what do you mean you can now make it? I went to a meeting last night, and uh, I heard a man talk, and he said, 
that he had been in the, around the fellowship for 11 years before he got his first year in. And she says, you know, I could identify with that. I can make it. I was happy for her, but I could have killed her. How come I didn't say something? That, <laughs> But you see, that's, that's why you want them to hear what everybody's got to say, because maybe they can identify. She could not identify with me coming in and not going out again. You know, I was chicken. Everybody accused me of being chicken. I said, well, I'd rather be chicken than what comes out the end of it. I just ain't going out no more. I am scared to go out. And Really? You know? Well, nevertheless, my sponsor, she drugged me everywhere. She was, she drugged me worse than I drugged my children. That woman drugged me to, to prison. She, see what can happen to you? And, oh my goodness. And all those kind of things. And, I, you, you know, she even down called me one time and, and bless my soul, I dreamt you was drunk. I said, I can't help what you dreamt. <laughs> but well, you know, I wasn't. Are you thinking about it? No, I'm not. Well, I don't know why I would dream a dream like that. (laughs) But I guess now some of it must have rubbed off because I'm about as bad as she is, so it doesn't make any difference if we all hang in like that. But, you know, those things are very important. They are, they, you know, they're more important than than those of us that have been around a day or two we seem to forget how important a sponsorship really and truly is. And I don't mean you have to dog a person to death like my sponsor did me, but then I had four. You know, it wasn't that I was any worse than anybody else. It was that there wasn't too very many women in the fellowship when I came in in my group. And uh, so when we got a live one, baby, they all jumped in on her one way or the other, you know. Everybody's going to sponsor, you know. I've become the most sponsored person you've ever seen in your life, you know. We got another woman. Let's, let's get it. And they did. And so then what what began to really and truly happen, my friends, was it went something like this. We began to think, at least I began to think, of these 12 steps. You know, they haunted me. In those days, we talked about the 12 steps. We compared the 12 steps with everything that come along, you know. Now, you know, this thing about, well, come on in and what are we going to talk about today? Oh, just talk about anything. That's what got me in trouble before, talking about just anything, you know. Let's talk about something, not just anything, you know. Well, you know, I want to tell you about my relationship. The heck with your relationship. Come into the fellowship and let's learn about that first, you know. This is what's important, you know. That's the reason why you cannot keep a relationship, because you have not learned how to live in the fellowship. Let's try those kind of things. And, you know, I oftentimes when I think of that first step, I think of how all the 12 steps, how they coincide with every month of the year that we have. When I look at, think of that first step, I often think of January. You know, when we first admit that we're powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. You think of the month of January. In January, it's a very cold, a desolate, gray day, is it not? And it seems so relentless. You know, I hear you have some pretty uh, weather pretty much like that around here, too, not only just Michigan. And can can you think, can you go back and think, and if you're new, you've just come out of it, that coldness in your life, that desolate, every day that you wake up is a gray, cold, relentless day, and the wind blows and blows and it never seems to stop. And it seems that there's no form of communication anywhere. That was the January of my life, that very beginning. It was so relentless, it never let up. Why? And I was powerless to do anything about it. Powerless. 
Try to do something about the month of January you can't. You say, well, I can go to Florida. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how long are you going to stay there? Not all of us can go there, you know. To me, when I look at that, this is where I live. This is what I've got to put up with right here. You know. And it is, I must, that's why we need a sponsor to carry me through that cold relentless. I thought she was going to bring me a drink of water. My goodness, boy. Let's see. Please. You have to beg for everything you want around here. So when one goes through that endless deal, and I think, you see, I never want to go back. I never want to go back into the January of my life, to that cold, desolate, gray, lack of communication. I can't talk to anybody. Nobody can talk to me. Because why? I'm powerless. My life is unmanageable. I don't want to raise the shade. I'm afraid to raise the shade. And it seems like it's so endless. Why would I want to ever go back into that January part of my life? And then finally something begins to happen. But we have to hang in there, and that's why you need a sponsor to help you hang in there through that desolate time of your life. And then finally, we have February, don't we? What happens in February? We have a February thaw. You know? The sun shines through. Thank you, sweetheart. The wrong kind of you. Even cold, too. <laughs> nice. You know, when one can come to believe in a power greater than himself, there is a ray of sunshine. At last, you remember that ray of sunshine? You see that it's faint at first. Very, very faint. And he said, ah. Something to hold on to. There will be a better day. How weak that sun first looks in February. And maybe it doesn't stay out very long. But it's just enough to get your spirits up. When one comes to believe in a power greater than himself that can restore him to sanity, to sane thinking. The kind of thinking that tells me any time, any person, place, or thing is so important that I got to get drunk. That person, place, or thing is just too important. That's that breakthrough. That's that weak, sickly-looking February sun. But I know if I can just hold in there, one day it's going to burst forth in all of its glory. I need a sponsor to help me to hang in there. Because, you know, you're just on your first legs. You're weak. But you say, I know it can happen because I saw just a ray of it. You know, that first ray that we have when we first come to believe, that very first ray, you say, I know it can happen. I know that. It didn't last very long, did it? But I came to believe in a power greater than myself. You had that flash. didn't last long. And you sit and you wait, so you have to hang in there. You wait because you figure, you know it's going to happen until you can how important is it that one comes to believe in a power greater than himself? Is that important to you? It is to me. Because the book says that God could and would if he were sought. You know? it's, it's, it's just that important that I come to believe in something. Right? The God that I understand. 
I always believed that there was a God, but to believe in God was kind of hard. You know, I thought he just didn't understand all the particulars if he knew what I was going through with. You know, that that was pretty rough. But I believed in him, you know. I believed that he was there. And then I began to believe in him. It could, You know, I stayed on that step, on that second step. For I know for at least two years you couldn't budge me off of the second step for the simple reason is that was my ray of sunshine. It was hard for me at first to believe, come to believe in a power greater than myself. Not that I thought I was great because I had no self-esteem. But a power greater that could restore me to sanity. Why the necessity of being restored to sanity? Why? Why is all of this so necessary? I'll tell you why. It is these other things that have stolen my sanity that I had so much faith in, and they stole my sanity. Anytime I let it, important for me, you know, that they can steal my sanity. Anything that I have that's monetary value that can steal my, these things can steal from me. Why would I let any person, place, or thing steal from me what they can't restore me to? Oh, no. This is important to me. That ray of sunshine that I began to hold into, hold on to, and finally it blazed forth in all of its glory. And it began to warm you up. But then again, we had the winds of March that came along. That third step, and that is a dollar, you know. <laughs> it really is. But we allowed the privilege of decision. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Boy, if that isn't March all over again, just as changeable. You ever, you ever wake up in the morning, oh, Lord, this morning I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of you. Before you can get out of the house, you're unchangeable. Just like the March wind. Backwards and forwards. Back, back, well, Lord, you know, you know, someone say, well, you know, you handle things pretty nicely, Holly, as long as you've been in the fellowship. You know, I know you've got it together. You handle things pretty nicely. I said, you know one thing? Don't fool yourself. You see a little duck going down the river, you know, doesn't that duck look serene and, oh, and my, and all of his fine feathers and everything? But you look underneath that water, them little feet's padding like hell under there, you know? <laughs> yeah. He gives you that object of serenity, just him sailing down there in all of his little glory. But he's padding for all, all dear life. Because it does not make any difference, my friends. Being human is being human, and God is good. We have that privilege of decision. But just like that march wind, it will come and it will go. Backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. But we hang in there. Anyway, because why the program tells us, the book tells us this too will change. It certainly will. There are days that one goes along and everything is calm and beautiful, just like that little duck. Especially when things are going your way, you know, say, oh, there, I just made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And let somebody cross you. (laughs) What did you do with your will and your life then? And, you know, we ask ask yourself, oh, isn't it wonderful to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God? Yes, it is wonderful. But ask yourself one question. Who else in the hell wants it? Nobody else wants it. Yeah. I, I don't have nothing I can do with it, with myself. Now, why would you want to? Oh, no. You know, uh-uh. And then, finally, we have that lovely fourth step, you know. 
<laughs> where we made a searching and fill a small inventory. This is the April part. You know, when it comes around to April, we most generally look forward to Easter where everyone puts on, or you do in many ways, put on a new garment of some kind. And there's growth. And without an inventory, my friends, there can necessarily be no growth whatsoever. And it says a searching and fearless more. You go out in April and you begin to search to see. And you look at the soil and you try to find out what is coming up out of this ground. Same thing that you do in inventory. You are searching for something. What are you really searching for? You are searching for the real you, are you not? I'm searching for me. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of whom? Of myself. So I'm searching really for me. Like I go out into my garden and I'm looking to see what's coming up and I, I don't know what to, what to disturb there. You know? Because everything is coming up. And I've been looking for this. I've been looking for growth. And now I see it. But there can be no growth without an inventory. There will not be any. Nothing whatsoever. And you say, well, I don't know what's growing. What are these things that I see here? Well, my friends, I have to look at these things. When do I separate? Now I begin to see what can, exactly what needs to be pulled up and what needs to be cast out. This thing is no good. So what do I do? In the May part of my life, I find exactly as the growth is beginning to come up, what, what was allowed, what April allowed to grow, May tells me, look, separate it. Admit to God, ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of your wrongs. Pull this weed out. It is no good. Because if I don't pull it out, it's going to stunt the growth of the flowers or whatever else has grown up there. I've got to. So in the fifth step where we have the privilege of admitting to God ourselves and another human being the exact nature. Sometimes we get so frightened with this step for the simple reason is that we feel, oh my Lord, what's going to happen? The exact nature. I don't know the exact nature of my wrongs. Well, you know, I got a little lonely. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if anything else has so terribly happened. And sometimes you know that loneliness really is the exact nature of my wrong. I permitted myself to be lonely. You see, loneliness has caused more crime than poverty ever dreamed of. You get into so many things. But you know, my grandmother taught me a long time ago, in spite of everything else that she didn't teach me, was this. That, you know, that loneliness is better than bad company in many instances, as long as you're sober. You see, you'd be staggering down the street, and, you then you know, the whole bunch of them get put in jail. But there ain't no policeman never walked up and said, you look like you're lonely, I'm going to put you in jail. But that ain't never happened, you know. Uh-uh. But it is what the things that I did, the exact things that I did because of my wrongs. Yeah. But we don't want to ever admit the exact nature of our wrongs. Nobody wants to admit that he or she ever fell into things because they were lonely. Oh, no, I ain't going to tell you I was lonely. You know, you're going to lie about it. Well, you know, oh, no, I went down there. I condescended to go down there. You know, after all, I thought that I would impress them with my presence. You went down there because you were lonely in hell and you had nowhere else to go. That's it. And you got into just like me all kinds of crap down there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Loneliness can sometimes be the exact nature of my wrongs. Because I had alienated everybody in the world from me that was worth 15 cents. And I had lost all the self-esteem that I ever had. Oh, yes. And I was still, my old ego was telling me, oh, go over here. You go over here and impress these people. You went down there because or you went over there because there was no place else. 
I associated with people ordinarily. Yeah. But why? They were the only ones who were paying any attention to me. Yeah. And they got sick of me. The exact nature of my wrong was me. Exactly what was wrong with me, I didn't want to tell you. But I and then, you know, once we find these kind of things, and we become entirely ready to have Almighty God to remove all these defects of character. Oh, that's June. It's getting hot, isn't it? It begins to get hot in June. Entirely ready to remove all these defects of character. Oh, my, you begin to sweat when you think about all these defects of character. Entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Well, if I get rid of this or that, what will that do to my image? You done screwed your image up a long time ago. What will it do to your image, you know? What will this do? Well, I can't get rid of this defect of character. What about my image, you know, after all? You know, have I not always been the life of the party? Have I not been all, always been the wittiest one there? And if I put down this or that, or if I change my vocabulary, why, people won't recognize me. Well, let's be glad. <laughs> as far as that is concerned. So you see, my friend. Now, as we go on a little further, I know I've got to do something. So when I get that taken care of and, and begin to realize the best thing I can lose is that image that I had, you know. That image that I created. That image that I allowed alcohol to create. That was one heck of an image. No wonder it made me sweat entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. You know, we're so afraid that we're going to, you know, avow the sainthood. You know, oh, I don't want God to remove all my defects of character. You know, I might be... Don't worry, you're going to get no halo. If it does, it's going to fall down around your neck and choke the hell out of you anyway, so you don't have to worry about it, you know. So finally, when I can acquiesce to this step and we go one step further, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Oh, boy, it's really hot then. It's really July. Watch the fireworks, because that's what we get. Humbly, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Why, and someone tells us this when we go, and we, well, I'm not going to meeting tonight because they're on the seventh step, and I don't have any shortcomings, so I don't need to go to that step meeting, you know. And someone say, hey, you know, we're working on our, that doesn't mean anything. We're working on our shortcomings. What do you mean we're working on our shortcomings? You work on your own shortcomings. Oh, boy, you watch the fireworks. I'm not going to meeting, not tonight that they're going to talk on that step, you know, because I might just discover that I might have a few shortcomings. I'm already displaying one right now when I tell you I don't have one as I'm showing you that I got a whole bushel of them shortcomings. But you know, mm-mm. And you just talk about the fireworks. You talk about going forth with a fifth on the fourth. That's when we do it, when somebody mentions shortcomings. Why, I got rid of my character defects. I said, what'd you do, commit suicide? <laughs> you got rid of the only way you're going to get rid of your character defects, you know. Right. So finally, I will consent, you know, I will consent to acquiesce to the fact that I might have a few shortcomings. Oh, yes, that I do have. The only thing that I you had short was a short fuse. That was it. But now that I've got to the part in the program now, you know, um, I've worked on my character defects and my shortcomings, and uh, I think I ought to be able to rest. I don't see anything about amends. August 
68 steps, you know, made a list of all persons we have harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. It's hot and humid in August, and that is the hot and humid part of my life. I'm sober, is that not enough? Why do I have to make any amends? My sobriety is, a, is, a, is enough that just that I'm sober, that's all the amends that I need, that need to make. Oh, boy, isn't that just lovely? I don't need to do anything else. I'm sober. And when everybody sees me sober, they will forget everything that I've ever done. Yeah, you might scare the hell out of them so bad sometimes they can't remember anything, you know. But now that I'm sober, I don't need to make any amends. Mm-mm. That's enough. Uh, brother, am I on a dry drunk now? I'm really dry. That hot, humid feeling that we have in August when it is so hot. And you scringe and you turn and you can't cool off anywhere. That is the same kind of feeling that one gets, that gut feeling when he gets, when this is just enough, I'm not going any further. That amends deal does not apply to me. That applies to everyone else but me. But yet I find out that it does. Because for my own peace of mind, and I no longer want to be a slave to anybody. You know, when I'm admitted that I was powerless over alcohols because I am powerless over so many other things, because the big book says that drinking is just a symptom of what's really wrong with me, so evidently I must be powerless over a lot of things. And one of them was this. When I don't want to make amends or straighten out these things, then I allow myself to be sold back into bondage. I become your slave then. You make me do things I don't want to do. If I have hurt you in any way, and I know that I've hurt you, and I don't want to straighten this out, every time I see you, I'm going to dodge you. I'm going to go in a different direction. So then you have got... A whip over my head. You make me go over here. You make me go over there like a slave because I, I don't want to face you. I don't want to straighten this out. Yeah. You know, sometimes we feel that when it comes down to making amends, uh, that I've got to get back into the same old mess that I once was in. That is not it at all. Amends is so that I can become free. A man told me one time about a bird that he hid, and I know that he was telling me the truth. Uh, and I began to think of that in the long lines of something that had happened in my life. He had found this bird, a robin it was, and it had broken its wing or leg or whatever. But anyhow, he took it into his house and the bird got well and finally he let the bird out. Because robins are not house birds and he let them out. And the robin flew in his cherry tree, which was in the backyard. And uh, Mr. Smith used to, Mr. Brown was his name, used to sit on his bench under the cherry tree. And he said, is this robin? would drop cherries down on his knee or leg or lap or whatever. And he said, this robin would go out, I don't know what you call those long worms that don't wear clothes, uh, fishing worms, yeah, that's it. And he says, and he would drag a worm and drop it on his shoe. But that bird did one thing, he would never again allow him to get his hands on it. Yeah. That bird felt, look, this man let me get well, he healed me. See? Uh, but he's not going to play hostage with me anymore. And sometimes we find that in life there are many times that we have people that have helped us along the way. It's true. And I owe them something. And I must pay them in whatever way that I can. But I must never let them get their hands on me again, you know. Because I will become their hostage again. 
Exactly. I will be right back where I started. And I want my freedom. I have to be free. I must be. I must have this free spirit. But I know I'll be right back where I started. And sometimes, you know, people will try to run a guilt trip on you. Look what I did for you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, look where I wound up. I'm going to straighten out this debt, whatever it was, with you. I've got to do that. My conscience tells me I must make this amends. But that does not mean I have to become your captive again. I can't permit this to happen to me. Oh, there's many ways that we can mess up this step. Many times in making amends, we crawl up to people and tell them how very sorry we are. Oh, we just grow. You crawl on your belly to get up to them so that you can really screw them up again, too, you know. That's another way of making amends. Oh, I'm going to tell you how sorry I am, you know, so I can get even with you. How are you using this step? Are you using this step to brag about it? You know, sometimes you say, well, I got to make amends to my husband or wife, you know. And I'm going to tell them, you know, what I used to do, except, except when to do so would injure them or others. And sometimes, you know, you'll say, well, dear, you know, I want to make amends to you for all the wrongs that I've done. You know, are you bragging or are you making amends? I want to tell you, you know, I used to go with John's wife. I'm so sorry about this. If you're all that sorry, why don't you go over and tell John you used to go with his wife. I bet you ain't going to do that. So why are you making this amend? Are you making this amend because you're sorry because you just want to hurt somebody all over again? Let's practice the steps over and over in the context of the way that they should, you know. Because, you see, it is. Direct amends. That's that September of my life. Labor Day is in September. I have to labor over the way that I must make amends. What is my motive behind making amends? I must labor over that so I can get it straight. And now, there comes a glad time. A very, very glad time in my life. You know, many times you and I don't want to look at the glad time. I have to watch this. You know, Halloween is a nice thing for some people. But for us, it's a bad time. You and I, we, we don't need Halloween. No. You know why? We must continue to take an inventory when we're wrong, promptly admitted. We have to watch the mask that we put on. Halloween is a time for masks for people who can wear masks. And we must pay attention to the type of mask that you put on. Because I lived behind a mask for so long. I forgot when Halloween was over with. And I forgot to take the mask off. And I began to live behind it. You know what I'm talking about. You know. And it can be the same thing today. That I cannot celebrate ever of hiding behind any mask. At all. Because I can remember the different personalities that each mask brought about. You know. And you, you know, sometimes when you wear the wrong mask, you get the wrong treatment. Because whatever you look like, that's what you're going to get. And sometimes you and I forget, we'll play the game behind the mask. So I must continue to take this inventory and promptly say, hey, baby, you're wearing that mask again. Halloween is not your day. Not ever. So take the mask off. You know. Because I want to be, shall we say, able to enjoy the bounty of Thanksgiving, which comes in November. And I like to look at the 11th step as that Thanksgiving, where one sought through prayer and meditation to improve his conscious contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Every day of my life is Thanksgiving. 
Every day of my life that I review this 11th step, sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact. Praying only for the knowledge of whose will? His will. Did you know one thing? It doesn't even down have Holly down there. It says his will. Praying only for the knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. Thanksgiving is just not one day out of a year for you and I. Thanksgiving is every day. Every day that you and I wake up sober. Every night that you and I lay down sober, that's Thanksgiving. Now, to give thanks. We don't have to wait to just November the 11th, you know. We don't have to wait to just Thanksgiving Day to be thankful, to be grateful. You remember what I was telling you about about the bird that fed that would drop the cherries down on the man's knee, you know? The bird was grateful. Oh, I hear the bird brain that's grateful. You got more of a bird brain? The bird brain can show gratitude. Certainly I can, and show it each and every day. Every day is Thanksgiving with me. Because why? You and I have been given the gift of life. Prayer and meditation to improve. Of course, now, you can't improve upon your conscious contact with anybody unless you know the person. Now, in the second step, we came to believe. In the third step, we become better acquainted. You you know, this 11th step, it's a beautiful thing. To improve my conscious contact. If you were going out today or tomorrow to buy someone a birthday card, you would look those cards over. You would really scrutinize each and every one. You'd say, I, you know, uh, I want to buy a card. Oh, no, I don't want that one. I, I want to buy one that, that really says something to him or her. And then finally you take your friend with you, and you both start looking at the cards together. And, you say, and your friend says, hey, how about this card? You say, this is him all over again, or this is her. Let's send this card. Why, why? Why, why, why are you doing this? Why is it so necessary that you get a card that reminds you so much of that person? Why? Because you want to improve your conscious contact with them, don't you? That's why you don't just walk in and pick up any old cards. Oh, well, let's send this to Harry. It's all he deserves anyway. No. <laughs> you go and you find a card that reminds you of this person, that sends a message. Why? Because you want to improve your conscious contact, you know. And when I'm here with you and when I'm sharing with you, I'm improving my conscious contact, you know. Because, you know, he, he told me something. He, he told me that, I have to love you. There now there's a lot of people I don't go around loving everybody, you know, it's hard. Now this is not the easiest thing in the world because a lot of people I can't even stand yet, you know. What I mean, but I'm learning to. Uh, there's no way in the world. Say, I don't love Robins, but if I saw one with a broken wing, I would try my best to help him. You'd better be so that he could fly again. Yeah. And if I felt now I can't fix his wing. I'm not gonna leave him lay there. I'm gonna let somebody else that can. I'm going to let somebody else that help. You know, sometimes it's like, you know, I can't help so-and-so. Well, then turn him over to somebody else. Just because you can't help him, you don't want anybody else to help him, huh? Is that it? Don't go like that. Fix his wing and help him fly. Why is this so necessary? Having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, it says we try to carry the message to alcoholics and to practice these principles and all of our affairs. Practice these principles. Giving and sharing. Isn't that what we do on Christmas time? Isn't that what we do the whole month of December of our lives? We don't wait for just Christmas. You and I have to give and share every day. 
Because, you see, we have learned one of the great lessons of life. Something that I learned a long time ago in the fourth grade, but I never thought that I'd ever be able to apply it in this life. That is not what we give, but what we share. For the gift without the giver is bare. But he who gives from his heart feeds three, himself, his hungering neighbor, and me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.